Welcome to Psychology Radiocast, a service of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. I'm your host, Dr. David Zerung. This episode provides one installment of a three-part series by Dr. Jade Logan, titled Why the World is on Fire, a a series on oppression, privilege, and trauma. You can listen to this episode independent of the rest of the series, and you can find information on the other parts on PPA's website, or simply follow the link in the show notes. Dr. Logan, welcome. Thank you for having me. So, uh, Jade, in this episode, you sit down with Dr. Audrey Irvin to uh, have a discussion about your lived experience uh, with these uh, topics. Um, what was it like to sit down with her? Um, you know, we I've known Audrey for, I don't know, a long time now. Maybe, has it been 10 years? Maybe. Um, and, uh, you know, when I thought about doing this project, I automatically thought of her. She gave me my start to teaching in DelVal at the graduate level. She is always so, I've always been able to have real, open, authentic, honest conversations with her. And particularly around issues of social justice, social justice education. She teaches diversity similarly, like I do as well. Um, and uh, it was really, uh, the word that keeps coming into my head is that um, a lot of optimism, humbled by our ability to have such a difficult conversation and have a mutual respect for each other, um, being in our different walks of life and having our different experiences, yet being able to come together. So um, we had a great time. Um, there were challenging moments, but we, we and, and we had a great time. There is no but. And we had a great time just being able to really talk through like how these um, topics, what's going on in this world right now is impacting us on a personal and professional level. So again, this is one episode of a series of three presentations. Can you let the listener know um, some of the backstory on um, what led to its development? Yeah, so we actually, um, Judy Huntley reached out um, to um, myself and and one of my other colleagues and friends, uh, Cheryl Rothery, um, and we, you know, talked about it and I ended up... um, talking with Judy and we decided that, you know, we might need a little bit more time. Like she had asked them just about, you know, doing something given all that's happening around issues of race and the, you know, the killing, the murder of of, um, black men, black people, and, you know, just wanting to do something. What do we do as psychologists in that role um, as educators? So she and I talked a little bit and after a couple of conversations, um, I sort of landed on doing three different um, three different dialogues that folk one focusing on oppression and the experience of the person in the marginalized space um, for this particular one it was African Americans um, and then or, or, and black people and one focused on the experience um, combined with the focus of experience of privilege and what it is like being in that space. And then the conclusion piece, or not the conclusion, but the end of the first two parts focused um, on, you know, how do we then work on this, these topics in therapy, in the therapy room? What does it look like thinking about the etiology versus just focusing <coughs> on the symptoms? 
So, and then the last piece with Audrey was really like, how now, how do we actually have these conversations? Um, so after talking about oppression, privilege, what do we do with this in the therapy room? How do we view this in the therapy room? The last part was a focus on having a dialogue between two folks who do this work on an everyday basis, um, on a regular basis. And um, what does it actually look like in real time? So sort of how it evolved. Now, I'd mentioned that uh, listeners can listen to this episode uh, independently of the others, but maybe as part of a way to encourage folks to listen to the other two installments, what were some things that stood out for you in each of the episodes with the acknowledgement that when a presentation is given, the experience of the presenter is sometimes different from the experience of the listener. But as presenter, what were some of the things that that really st- stood out for you in each of the episodes? So the first one, um, uh, the first episode, what stood out the most was an understanding of the historical um, implications of where we're at right now and how that has trickled down um, to you know the current state of affairs, how history is in a lot of ways repeating itself. Um, so that and 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 the way that that plays out, there's a very powerful video in the first one by Kimberly Jones, who's an author um, and filmmaker, um, that she sort of uses the, a monopoly game, the concept of monopoly, in order to show how and why um, African Americans, Black people are in, you know, are sort of in the state that they're in dealing with some of this trauma, a lot of trauma from um, from these acts of violence that are constantly happening. Um, so that's really what stands out is really being able to start to connect the history to it, um, to that. And then in the next one, what uh, part two, what stood out is how does this actually look in therapy? How do our biases come about? And then how do we actually work with um, uh, African-American Black people um, in, in therapy from the identities that we hold as well? Because we would be, I would be remiss if I didn't say that um, there definitely will be a different experience, right? If I just use myself and Audrey, her working with an African-American person and myself working with an African-American person and vice versa, you know, um, uh, me working with a white um, person and her working with a white person, either in therapy or teaching. So it starts the second one. That is something that really, really stands out to me. And the final one, um, Audrey actually shared this phrase um, when we were talking of something she was going to take away. And the phrase was, see it, claim it, and stop it. Mm-hmm. And I love that because she really just brought the whole thing together in a beautiful way of, you know, we need to recognize when we are, you know, in, in the midst of our biases, when we're experiencing biases, we need to acknowledge that that's what it is. And then we need to find a way to stop find a way to make sure we're not perpetuating these same oppressive symptoms that symptoms systems that we have been sort of socialized to do um, since the day we were born, not knowing, 
You know, the, a lot of these systems were put in place way before anybody who was currently walking on this earth was even a thought, let alone alive. So, yeah. Well, one of the things that I, that I stood out for me, in addition to the content, was just the rapport and friendship that you guys uh, have. And that was just a fun thing that I that I noticed. It's good to be professionals and colleagues, but it just adds something when you can detect that friendship. Yeah, it was, it was, we had a nice time. I, I always love sitting down and talking with her. And, um, and my hope is, is that everyone after they watch, if, you know, when they get a chance, if they get a chance to watch all three is that it, you know, really pointing out that piece is like, we can really have these difficult conversations and that's really where it starts. Um, so my hope is, is we were able to model that too, of how do we do this, have moments of agreement, disagreement, and then just compassion and respect for the other person's experience as well. So, Exactly. Wonderful. And now for Dr. Logan's presentation. Welcome, everyone. This is the third part of a little series that we've done on issues of racial trauma, systemic oppression and privilege. Um, for the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. Um, I have Dr. Audrey Irvin here with me today, and we are just gonna spend um, a little time sort of talking about our reactions to these topics and, the t and some of the things that have been happening around us, particularly um, the May, in May 2020, the murder of George Floyd. Um, and we'll likely touch on, you know, sort of the beginning of that process, which was around when, Trayv when Trayvon Martin passed away or was killed in 2012. Knowing that there's a lot of things that happened before that, but that's sort of our springboard here is starting to have those dialogues and embracing and understanding and challenging all the privilege and uh, aspects of systemic oppression that we have been dealing with or hold within us. So um, so thank you so much, Dr. Irvin, Audrey, for joining me in this conversation today. So yeah, yeah, welcome. Thank you. To start, what I thought we would do is take a second and socially locate ourselves. Um, so I'll go first and then I'll turn it over um, to Dr. Irvin. And then I'll throw a question out there and we're just going to have a conversation about, about these things. So I am a, I identify as an African-American cisgender female. Um, I was, I am from a working class background and am in a uh, middle class background at this time. I identify as heterosexual and Christian, able-bodied. And I think those are my, the main ones. Um, gender expression is more feminine. Gender identity um, is a woman. So that is where I am at. So uh, Dr. Irvin, I'm going to turn to you. Thank you so much first um, for having me on. Dr. Logan, I can't thank you enough. Um, and you, you, I invite you to call me Audrey if you feel comfortable with that. Okay, um, will do. You call me. <laughs> <laughs> My identity point as feminist. But I do um, identify as a white cisgender female. I'm middle class and from a middle class background, raised by a lot of social workers, teachers, and nurses. Mm -hmm. I am able-bodied and um, I, am, I arrive here with multiple privilege points mm -hmm. that 
allow me access and uh, have sculpted who I am and impact how I interact. And I'd, I'm happy to have conversations, particularly in the context of what is happening today. Uh, another identity point is I'm a, a licensed psychologist with a private practice and an academic director of a graduate program, mm -hmm. which also allots me other social privileges around having platforms for discussion. Mm -hmm. And that's really important. Thank you so much for bringing that up, Audrey, because I, you know, what we want to also make sure we touch on today is how these, these, um, these huge things that are happening, these topics that are happening, our experiences are impacting our jobs as well and our professional roles as well. Um, and I am also, you know, a, uh, a professor in a doctoral program um, in Philadelphia area and am the director of our internship program. So we have all of these intersecting pieces that are playing out here. Um, so to get us started, I'm going to throw it to you, Audrey. So um, my first sort of question point of thought and curious about your reaction is since the murder of George Floyd in May 2020, um, you know, we've been talking about oppression, privilege, um, trauma, racial trauma specifically. Curious about how that event has either changed, adjusted, or challenged your experience of privilege. And, and just noting that both Audrey and I have been engaged in this social justice work probably for more years than either of us want to mention at this point. It's been a, just because it'll age us. It's been a long time. Um, so, um, so that is definitely a piece of this as well. But, but curious about that, what that journey has been like, um, maybe sharing a little bit before your experience of privilege before, and then if anything shifted um, afterwards. Well, I arrive as somebody who's, like you said, done social justice work for, for a long time as a white woman uh, in teaching multicultural counseling. And so part of professionally what I always ascribe or attempt to do is to facilitate critical consciousness. So mm -hmm. pre-current murder, uh, facilitating very pointed conversations around what it means to show up. Uh, as an aspiring counselor, what it means to show up in all of your social identities. And generally, um, I see my role as facilitating spaces for difficult dialogues. Mm -hmm. As a white person, I mm -hmm. ebb and flow in terms of my awareness and yeah. my consciousness. Um, and being in the classroom allows a certain level of privilege to facilitate difficult dialogues. I was at the end of teaching multicultural counseling at the graduate level um, in May of 2020. Mm -hmm. And so it was a break in between semesters. I was personally and, and continue to be both outraged and appalled. And I found myself um, moving from places of feeling settled in some ways around racial consciousness and social justice action to outrage and anger. Mm -hmm. um, and at times I would find myself being paralyzed by that anger as I watched the protests unfold, as I listened to narratives of oppression and overt hatred and intolerance, mm -hmm. um, and trying to figure out how I can best use my knowledge, my skills and my awareness in ways that are helpful Sometimes I am there and other times I arrive 
just filled with anger and paralyzed and mm-hmm. on better days, I can move through and channel that anger into productive mm-hmm. movement or action. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you say the anger and frustration. I'm curious, how do you move through it? You know, because I can, and I can share my experience of anger and frustration because I have a feeling it's probably a little different, your anger and then my anger, you know, um, but I wanted to start with you and then I can share as well. But how do you move through it in those spaces, especially when you're teaching this group, depending on the identity of the group and the mix of various identities of those you're teaching and even working with in therapy? Well, and I'm glad you named that, Jade, because right, right, uh, my experience as a white woman yeah. uh, is inevitably very mm-hmm. different, I'm going to assume, than your experience uh-huh. um, as an African-American woman. So as a, as a white woman, I have all the privilege to have this white moral outrage, huh. right? So mm-hmm. I, can, I can both observe systemic racism and I have the privilege to speak out against it, to I'm allowed to express mm-hmm. my anger. Mm-hmm. Um, I can also take up a lot of space in sharing my, my moral outrage mm-hmm. um, without a lot of consequences, I might add. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and then the moving through piece, which may be premature, is really um, sitting with what I'm experiencing and maybe understanding on a deeper level that some of that outrage is because of the white supremacy that I've internalized. Yeah. And so the ways that um, the, my outward anger may be a reflection of all of the, the white supremacist ideologies that I have internalized and I continue to act out unconsciously. Mm-hmm. And I told me towards myself <laughs> as well yeah. as dominant systems. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's interesting because I think, you know, when I feel the anger, it's more of like, I'm, I'm angry and I'm frustrated that we're still here. And uh, I remember my experience right after is I actually canceled my classes. I gave them an activity to do but my classes are um, you know, predominantly white students. Very, and we can talk about intention and impact if we happen to get there, but that's a whole nother conversation, but very well-intentioned um, and learning and, and trying to learn, yet it was a struggle. I foresaw a struggle and I think it was true. I, I know it to be true um, of engaging in any sort of business as usual um, in the midst of this, and I sort of had to put on this front that is was all fine. And I and knowing that I have, you know, my private practice, predominantly African American, um, Haitian, um, Jamaican, but mainly the African diaspora uh, of clients, uh, mostly uh, uh, women, uh, cisgender females, um, wanting to be ready for them. So wasn't going to exert, and we talked about emotional labor. There's so many things we've talked about before we came here, but (laughs) not wanting to exert any emotional labor with anyone but them. And I think my anger was like, why are we still here? How I knew how we were still here. And I also knew a bit about why, Um, but not wanting to have to have a conversation with white people. If I'm just being, if I'm naming it and being completely honest. And, um, And I think as you spoke about, you know, being able to use your outrage and, and sort of talk through it. I, di- I just wanted to go away and not have to defend. And maybe that's the word, not wanting to have to defend anything that was happening in the world and give reasoning for why. 
I didn't want to have to do that. And I, and as I sit and have this, cause I think that's the first time I've ever even used that word. I sit as I, as I sit here and have this dialogue with you about it. Um, I think that's right. I didn't want to have to defend anything. I just wanted to be whatever I was unapologetically without the worry that there would be a consequence of me being too emotional or being rageful or they didn't mean it like that. Um, it actually didn't matter how they meant it because the impact was so great, you know? So I feel like I'm going on a tangent, but like, it's, it's, it's so, it's such a, you know, it's almost like this parallel experience that was happening um, for you versus myself after that time. If that, yeah. And Jade, and what I hear in that is that you really knew that this, this immense um, emotional labor of having yeah. to tend to the students and their, yeah. right. And in multicole, part of what we do is the holding and whether it's yes. white fragility or all of the complex dynamics, I hear you saying you had to make a very conscious yeah. decision about how much emotional bandwidth you had because mm -hmm. you wanted to, you wanted to tend to your clients of color and yeah. you had it. Like you didn't want to talk yeah. to white people because yeah. I'm going to impose my own because we we're exhausting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, right. 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 And it was nice to see. And I mean, you know, my, my white peers, my white colleagues, um, friends, nice to see that so many folks were like ready to go at the same time and not wanting to quiet that at all, but at the same time being too exhausted to even go there. Like I needed a, I needed a break from all things and all people who were who were white and I'm not sure how that's going to be received but like it was like I needed I and I don't think that that was a uncommon experience of people of color and specifically black people around that time it was it was just it was exhausting and tiring and there was a lot of fear around like where it's going to happen next um fear around stepping outside your door. And that's the trauma piece. And I think that's the trauma piece that, um, I think when we think about trauma, we think about PTSD, we think about, you know, experiences of vets, sexual trauma, those sorts of things. But those pieces, you know, watching something where you, where you could have been the person laying there, um, you could have been the person who lost someone. Um, it's hard to not think that that is me or that could be me, or that could be my 10-year-old nephew, or the fact that I pull his hoodie off when he walks down the, sh you know, like, and it's instinctual. It's like, nope, don't do that, because I don't know what people are going to think or say, you know, so, um, and I was just done with all of that. I just wanted to be unapologetically, unapologetically Black and all that accomplished <laughs> in that moment, yeah. I'm so appreciative of you sharing that experience, and I'm simultaneously... Uh, angry and sad because I'm aware we're often we're doing this right now too it's like it's like I don't want I hear you saying I don't want to be around white people and then it was like and we kind of have to protect them because mm -hmm. I don't know how white people are going to hear this right? right I mean and that goes yes. a lot to that concept of of white fragility because yeah. white people myself included and by the way I'm not speaking on behalf of all white people uh -huh. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> I'm speaking on behalf of me as a white person and what I understand. Um, uh -huh. But that concept of white fragility, it's like um, that your racial reality is so very different from my yeah. racial reality 
And yet, even in the conversations, we have to make sure we protect the white people because mm -hmm. I'm socialized to anything mm -hmm. that, that is around race that is stressful, right? Uh -huh. um, the, 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 the white socialization is to become over-emotional, um, distraught, and then people of color are put in the position of saving me or saving us. Right. Uh, and that, that's not okay. Right. And when you made the choice to say, I cannot, I am not, I cannot tend to the emotional needs of folks because there are uh, protests and murders unfolding and mm -hmm. the racial realities of black people and people of color in this country are becoming exposed. And you're saying, I am not, I do not feel mm -hmm. safe. Mm -hmm. um, you, you, you do not have the safety that I have. And so right. as a white person, I can come from this place of safety um, and have a very different lived experience. Right, right. How do you, Audrey, you know, how do you use your privilege, you know, or how might you use your privilege at this time in, in the work that you're doing? And when, you know, whatever. And I know we've talked about sort of our professional and personal and other conversations. So I guess I'm curious, you know, how does one use that um, in, in trying to help dismantle what it is, is racism? you know, and, and this idea of white, and, and not an idea, it's a thing, and white supremacy, mm -hmm. which, yeah. <laughs> Wait, how, how do I use my white privilege to dismantle the white uh, supremacy that I've yeah. internalized, operate under, and benefit from every day? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, first, I'm going to say uh, I do the best that I can, but probably pretty poorly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, and I think about this work as waking up every day and having to mm -hmm. unlearn. Yeah the things that I've internalized. So specifically, how do I use my, my white privilege um, when I can? No, when mm -hmm. I can, no, no, not when I can, when I do. When you do. Because I yeah. always can. It's yeah. always there. Huh. Um, I, I go easily to the platforms of the university. Um, I obviously participate in facilitating conversations and educational experiences. I think on a, a more personal level, um, being aware of my own internalized racism and then facilitating conversations about that, whether it's with trainees, whether it's mm -hmm. with family or friends, being aware of when I experience um, all the manifestations of racism and using my, mm -hmm. my voice. Mm -hmm. I also try to be intentional in how I spend my money and where mm -hmm. I count mm -hmm. my energies. Um, understanding that all of my choices really are political, like the personal is the huh. political, contacting representatives, joining in solidarity uh, in movements that I can, um, mm -hmm. and also stepping back at this point. So it's been an interesting um, dance between exercising white privilege, but also stepping back um, to hear the voices mm -hmm. of people of color um, and really hear and not speak on behalf of, because mm -hmm. that's not, that's not, yeah. <laughs> that's just it's such a delicate supremacy. Yeah. yeah. And it's such a delicate balance. Like I've been doing a couple of um, workshops and whatnot recently. And I think that's something that I'm constantly encountering. And I want, you know, I find myself at a space of wanting, um, wanting my white peers, white participants, white colleagues to sort of take on this emotional labor and share what that 
you know, what you're doing and, and, and what the impact is and, and, and on you and how it's sort of changing and molding you. And at the same time, I hear my, my, white, my white peers, colleagues, friends saying, well, it's time for me to be quiet now. And it's like this delicate balance. And uh, I'm not yet sure how to completely navigate it. Um, because I do think there's this experience of, you know, from a, you know, and again, I don't speak for all black people, you know, I think that's, an, you know, we want to put that disclaimer out there, but from experience, you know, experience is like, I'm sick of sharing my emotional journey. So I want you to, I want my white peers to, at the same time, I hear that it's like, we talk all the time. So we need to hear what you have to say. And I don't know yet. I don't know if there's a way to strike that balance, to figure out that balance. Um, but it's something that has come up every single time I've had this, this type of a dialogue, whether it's in a professional setting or even a personal setting. It's like, it's time for me to be quiet and listen. And I'm like, uh-uh, it's time, you know? So I don't know if we're even thinking about two different things that we want the other to talk about or... Yeah. So curious, like if you have any immediate thought about that one, you know, like. I, I really appreciate it because I, I hear it as a both and, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I feel like um, in some ways, and I want to kind of meme this, it, it also, I'm aware within my internalized white supremacy and white privilege, I can be the, I can sort of draw on the, it's time for me to, to step back and be quiet as a mechanism to not do the work. Ah, okay. Right? And, and, yes. and, and at the same time, um, like, like my extroverted white woman self, like I could talk on and on and on about like systemic inequality and, mm -hmm. and again, my moral outrage. And so at the same time, I'm participating in taking up space mm -hmm. where other voices may, may be, be more, much more important. Right. Right. Um, right. 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 So it's I think like our perceptions, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's both. And, and I don't yeah. know that there's a, I think it's messy and I don't think there's, um, I, I don't think that there's an easy answer, but I, I feel like if I find myself stuck in the either or either you speak up or you don't, then I've got caught in the stagnation mm -hmm. of participating in the status quo. Mm -hmm. So I need to sit with all my own feelings, take responsibility, process with white people in circles yeah. of, of, social justice and white rate like and and uh you know white anti-racist work mm -hmm. i need to do that work with white people and not put it on to people of color mm. right and that so so that's an important piece which i've been bumping up against constantly as well i teach diversity in the fall that's usually when i teach it um and this is a fall that is an election year so it'll be interesting when i'm teaching it um, I'm remembering the fall four years ago when I taught it during election year, but that's been a piece is like, as I think about racial trauma and I know in the talks, I, you know, mentioned microaggressions and, and how they play out and how they can play out in the classroom and therapy, those sorts of things. And I wonder about re-traumatizing our students of color, um, our black students. Um, and I know coming up, I think I, I have one African-American student in the class um, other students of color, I'm still, you know, learning their identities and, and who they are. Um, but that piece of uh, when you talked about having those conversations with, with white peers, white colleagues, white friends, and is that necessary? 
I think that there is a fear and I feel it a little bit of like, it's not okay to split people up when we're having these conversations and basically splitting up by racial and racial lines. I think that there is an authenticity and honesty that can come out um, in conversations with those who look like us. Um, but I think what also will happen is that our white, our, 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 our students of color, our black students, black peers, aren't re-traumatized as white folks are figuring out their stuff. So, uh, and I'm not yet sure, and I feel like we're gonna have more questions than answers in this, but I'm not yet sure how to strike that balance because I do think that it is a legitimate concern. Um, and they call them caucus groups. It's been done. I was a part of one of them when I went to a white privilege conference way back when, but it, it's, so it is a thing, but I don't know if it's a thing that we have often used or even feel that we can broach to do. Well, and maybe that's a point of discussion as we look at this particular point in time, we have to rethink the way that we've been doing things, or at least right. I, I, think, I think I have to rethink the way that I've been doing things. I've been teaching multicultural counseling for, you know, however many years, many, many, mm -hmm. um, and I've often worried, Jade, about the same piece. Um, yeah. I, I work at a traditionally white institution and oftentimes mm -hmm. the racial diversity of the class is there may be one or two people of color mm -hmm. and historically multicultural counseling was taught at the expense much like white supremacy yeah. manifests at the expense of people of color right because right? at the forefront of of when psychologists began to become aware of of the way racial injustice manifests the, the old model was to sort of um, teach to white people. Mm -hmm. very and, true. And, that, and that replicates the very inequalities. Mm -hmm. And it also replicates white racial socialization. White people historically are taught mm -hmm. um, that, that race or ethnicity is an additive, right? Social mm -hmm. justice is like an extra thing. Yes. And the intersectionality model is saying we cannot do that any longer, or we should not be doing that um, because it's teaching white people to, to not look at their own socialization, to look at the, the ways that the messages that, that we've learned, like what did mm -hmm. I learn growing up from well-intended white people? Like don't talk about race, right? Mm -hmm. um, othering, mm -hmm. uh, the idea that the, like you can't be proud as a white person because then you're a racist. The only option mm -hmm. for white people is like, like an overt racist or sh we don't talk about it. That's right. not helpful. And to right. go back to what you were saying about the racial caucus groups, right now what is exploding is that people of color, I'm going to put it, mm -hmm. my, my interpretation, do not yeah. feel safe for very good reason. Right. Um, and white people need to realize that people of color have to, out of survival, have spaces of safety that don't yeah. include us. Right. Because we're damaging. Right. And we hurt people. Yeah. I hurt people when I don't mean to unconsciously because yeah. I'm acting out the, the, the white supremacy that's been internalized. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make me a bad person, but it does make me a person who participates in the status quo every day without meaning to. Right. And that when you you know, when you said it's damaging and it hurts. I think that's what I'm trying to protect every time I get up there and teach as a black woman, knowing that, knowing that I've been on the flip side of that, being the only one in these conversations um, around race and my own education and experiences and things like that. 
um, that's what I'm trying to protect them from. My, my, my students of color, my black students, um, is not to be re-traumatized. And it's like, how do you say, we need to split this group up because it, you, my, my white students will inevitably um, traumatize my students of color. Like, that's not okay to say. But it's, the, and so when you said it, I was like, I don't have to say it. I didn't have to say it when you said it. And I think it coming from you. And we, again, that's why we socially located ourselves in the vessel that we possess. Um, it means something different coming from you. For me, my fear, my worry is that, and I mean, I work at a space where I do feel like I have a lot, people have a lot of respect for what I do and how I do it. So, um, so putting that out there, but um, there is still this worry that, well, why would you ever do something like that? Why would you ever say that when it's not like good or bad? It just is like, I know after over 15 years of teaching this kind of a class that there is going to be someone likely a well-intentioned white female that is going to attempt to show how much she does know which i want her to do but at the expense of likely saying something that's going to be very impactful to my um uh black students all of my students of color and i will get a reaction or a reflection about that or I would, they, I wouldn't have been, they would have been in a different class and I would have seen them in therapy and they would have shared with me this ha happened and either the teacher did something, the professor did something or didn't. And what that reaction or their colleague or their boss said something if it's at a work event. So I don't know yet how to convey that, 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 that just sitting there is a traumatizing event. Just sitting there is a traumatizing event and, and, it, in the spirit of right growth and development right and people of color continue to be re-traumatized right. by our systems and i right. and i heard you jade say you know i as a black woman can't name this even though i know this to be a very true reality right mm -hmm. and i hear you having like dual consciousness yeah. right here's what i know in my lived experience and how do i protect people of color and how do i how do i walk around the egos yeah. of white people who like you right. know like we're so used right. to 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 because i feel like it's my responsibility to protect them and to protect my students of color that I know that I'm gonna say something because I have a bit more power in that room because I'm the professor, right? Or I'm the therapist, or I'm the director of whatever I'm the director of, you know? Like, I feel like it's my job to protect them um, because I'm, you know, cause I've been there, you know? We've, I, I've, I've, I've been there and it is, it is painful. And you don't want, I don't want my white students to stop talking. I can't have them stop talking. I have to get them to stumble through it and do it and get angry at it. And just, I just want them to take it out on me and not take it. And what happens is they take it out on, and not, on, not intentionally, but that's what happens as we're trying to sort of navigate and teach this, this stuff. I'm sorry, I totally cut you off, but like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no. You know, that was bad. I probably shouldn't apologize for what I said, right? Isn't that reenacting all the white supremacy stuff, right? <laughs> it's completely reenacting. Like, I, 
I was about to say, I'm sorry again. I can't, it's so, it's so natural to do. It's so, I, I'm so glad you're naming it, right? And so, and so here, um, we're having this conversation and, and white supremacy is getting acted out. Yeah, like, right. Like that, the, the, your internalization of white supremacy, my internalization, and we're, and we're trying, I think, to have this conversation and, and in the way that, like, what is happening between us, the process mm-hmm. happens every single day. Every day, yeah. Mm-hmm. Every single day. And I hear the exhaustion and the trauma. Right. Right. So it's like, where do we, you know, you, you mentioned, and I know I said it too, um, you mentioned um, white supremacy several times. And I think that word, those, those words together are terrifying for people. Um, and, and, and will immediately lead to defensiveness, yet we're enacting it right now by me apologizing to you, Audrey, a white female for sharing what my truth was, because internally I'm, I don't want you to experience it as uncomfortable and maybe also not maybe let's just say what it is also wondering how this is going to be received and that I will offend someone, you know, that's not my intent in speaking my truth. I guess our truths, my truth is makes people uncomfortable. Um, and uh, that idea of white supremacy, I think I've been more intentional in like using that in spaces where I can. I actually think I err on the side of capitalism because that feels less threatening to some, but um I think they kind of go hand in hand, but <laughs> you know, so um, I don't know what the question or the comment is, but um, I think you're right. I am dancing around something because I, I think I'm always in my head about how is this going to be received? How am I going to be perceived? Um, and I don't want people to stop having the conversation. So when I teach and stuff and when I talk, I, I go into it willing to be that vessel that people need to work their stuff through in order for them to keep going. But that's exhausting because I go into it knowing. Yeah. What an exhausting, Jada, here, because you're, you're the vessel and you're, you're trying to hold transformation and facilitate transformation and also living through racial trauma as, as a woman of color. Right. 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 And, right. And, and then, and then like, you know, and I hear this right now, like, you know, like I, I don't want to, I don't want people to think poorly when I share my truth. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't want white people to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ultimately the dismantling of white supremacy, again, white mm-hmm. people aren't bad. It's the system of supremacy. Yeah. Right. Right. That, that that dismantling isn't your responsibility, huh. as I experienced. It's not for people of color, mm-hmm. because white people are who have facilitated, participate, and continue to benefit. So part of the hard piece, I think, for for white people is is owning our role in the perpetuation of racism mm-hmm. and owning our role in maybe shunning the emotional labor, right? Like, right. because because then that way I can dabble in um, 
in, in the, the, the cognitive knowledge that racism is out there, but not really do the emotional work. Mm-hmm. If I, if, if my expectation is that people of color are responsible for dismantling, rising up, I need to be part of that movement. And yeah. that, that work, that emotional work. And I think for white people from, in my experience, like when we talk mm-hmm. about white racial identity, it's the movement from the cognitive, like the thinking about, okay, I can understand cognitively that there's inequality and racial disparities and, mm-hmm. and white supremacy is a system that disadvantages in overt and very covert and subtle and pervasive ways. Mm-hmm. But how do I hold that horror? Yeah. Right. And so right. I think part of my process as a white person is continuing to have the courage, which I don't always have yeah. to sit right. with how hard it is. Right. And, my, and, and so that's an internal experience that is so different from yours because I can walk yes. outside and be safe right. and unplug from racism. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And I can't. And you can. You know, right. And, and, and yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, it, it just, it reminds me of the conversation that for me was incredibly powerful uh-huh. when we were talking about um, our reactions in May yeah. to murder. And, yeah. and I shared that I, I was feeling incredibly overwhelmed and angry mm-hmm. um, and that my partner said, let's get in the car and took me for a lovely drive in in the countryside and I mm-hmm. said it's this beautiful sunny day and the world is exploding and I felt all of this mm-hmm. strife and cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. and then I shared that with you mm-hmm. and you remember what did you say you remember what yeah you I do I I said that um I would be terrified to go out into the country and um because I don't know if it was safe or not um, that I live, um, I live in the Mount Airy area and supermarket I go into all the time over in Flower Town. I was scared to even go in there. I, it, you know, I went early in the morning, um, which I'm an early person anyway, but this felt different this day. I made sure I went early when there was the fewest amount of people because I wasn't sure how I would be received because people don't see doctor anything when I'm out and about in the world. They don't see a psychologist when I'm out in the world or a professor or the director of an internship. They just see this black female, this black woman, um, and all that goes with that. So yeah, I rem- I rem- and I remember being angry. I think I shared this with you, angry at you that you got to unplug and I never could. Um, that I couldn't unplug and, and, and angry at you. And at the same time, happy, not happy, happy is too strong, but like, that must be nice. Like not all anger and frustration, but like, I'm glad somebody gets to do it, you know, which is weird. It's like, you know, it feels like that, but like, that's what this is too. It's like every now and then, I'd like to have it and I and I have a lot and I have privilege in a lot of ways. I think being being black because that's the thing that folks see first that is, you know, we can talk about hierarchies and, you know, the literature around that stuff, but being black is so on the forefront, is so salient is the word. Um that my other buffers only help but so much. <laughs> 
compared to my white counterparts who are on the same level with the other identities that I have, you know? So, um, so yeah, I remember being, I saying I was angry at you for it, that you got to go and unplug and I couldn't unplug. And at the same time being like, well, I'm glad somebody gets to unplug from this for a few minutes because it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Mm -hmm. Jade, I just want to, I want to thank you um, immensely for how incredibly honest and authentic and I, and that you trusted me with that anger um, mm -hmm. because that to me felt like, well, that, that was a part of the conversation that I really, I mean, I took and I continue to take um, and, and sit with every day. Mm -hmm. And when I think about the work mm -hmm. for, for me as a white person, um, it's, it's holding that and you, you, you having the trust in sharing that anger with me um, and, and, and like me taking it. Um, mm -hmm. And truly, if I think that there's going to be personal or societal transformation, that's where it has to start. Those yeah. really hard, honest, mm -hmm. um, complex and icky conversations, right? And not just conversations, because we're not solving problems, but we're showing up, I think, and being authentic mm -hmm. in our very divergent racial realities. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I appreciate that. And I, and I, I've appreciated, you know, watching my white peers, my white colleagues, my white friends, like doing this work and doing this work because they're angry about it because they have their own well, white moral outreach, <laughs> that it's not because they know me, that it's, you know, it's like the true definition of what allyship and being an ally is, um, is watching, you know, my, my white peers and colleagues sort of engage in this work unapologetically and not saying that, you know, I have this in my background, you know, these folks in my life. So that's why I'm doing it. Like it's so, it feels more authentic. The, the way I'm seeing it play out and not for everybody, but for many people in my circle um, and my circle gets bigger and bigger, but in my circle, they're like, they're doing it. Um, and it's nice that I don't have to, that I don't have to say white supremacy and I don't have to say that you know the impact of you know that you're being you're hurting other you're hurting the students of color in the classroom when you're doing saying those things it's it's like i don't have to say it and and it, sometimes it's mind-boggling it's like oh wow you know <laughs> like okay maybe i you know because you can always i always feel like i can take a seat when there's another person of color who has found their way and worked their way through and have a little bit more power than me that they can say those things but it's different to see a white person say those things and like do it in a way that it's like, maybe this can be different. Maybe this can be different. So it's, it's been fun. And, and I know exhausting in ways, you know, doing this because maybe it will be different. I, I don't, I, I, it's going to take a long time. You know, this stuff happened before anybody on this earth was living you know, if we want to go down that path and look at the history of everything, you know, like it was, I've been reading a people's history, um, listening to it by Howard Zinn. And I've used chapters in my, in my classes before, but started reading it from the beginning all the way through. And the way, you know, one might not, if reading that, and I wasn't surprised, but I'm really not surprised by where we are right now. 
it was it was how they did it. <laughs> and when I hear you say that, I'm both like, again, angry and and not and, and, and just, I I I I, I couldn't, I'm giving myself permission to arrive again with shock. Like when yeah. I sit and really and more intentionally, I will say, um, yeah. I've been paying more attention, being much more conscious about. Um, going back to history, the history that yeah. as a white person, I can, I can miss without much consequence. Yeah. I've gone back and it, it is, it's crazy making. It is. How these systems are repeating themselves and right. it's crazy making um, right. how I have just re-participated in pathologization yeah. of people, in the oppression of people, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and how it can happen every day mm -hmm. and be invisible. Right. Right. Yeah. So as we, as we wrap up, I'm just realizing the time as we wrap up, I, I'm, I'm wondering, I know it goes by so fast. <laughs> I could talk to you for weeks. I know. It goes by so fast. But you know, where do we go from here? And it's a big question that's going to take hours, but maybe we can each come up with something, you know, as concise as we can. But, um, um, where do, where do we go from here? Um, and I, I can start and then I'll, you know, let you, let you share too. I think as a African-American cisgender Christian heterosexual middle-class at this point, female, um, I've noticed in the last several weeks that, and I think I always knew, but it's coming more and more now in my role that I do have a little bit of power and I'm thinking about as a therapist, as a psychologist, as a director of the internship consortium, as a faculty member um, um, in, my, in the doctoral program I, I'm in and the respect that I have of my colleagues and my peers that there are things I can do. I can throw a few softballs and I don't have to pass them to my white colleague anymore. Um, so I think for me, it's, it's continuing to push the envelope a bit. Um, and at the same time, recognizing when I need to step back because I want to step back and I need a moment. I, I, you know, like when I decided that I wasn't going to have class that particular day is that, and, and that's an unapologetic decision. I don't have to feel bad about it or feel that I'm weak about it. And my hope is, is to model that for my black students and my students of color. Um, because I do worry about them in the midst of all of this. And not that they're, they're not able to do the work, but I see the emotional labor. And, um, and I think it's continuing to hold them and tell them there will come a day when you'll choose when you want to have these conversations. And it's not because, you know, it, it's, and, and be okay with it. You know, there's something about feeling like you have to versus you're choosing to, you know? So I think it's using that um, and using it in the work that I do when I do get an opportunity, how can I, um, where, where's my sphere of influence? Um, yeah, I think it's, where is my sphere of influence and making sure that I, um, 
engage in that when I'm able to and when I want to and to step back when I need to, you know, especially if we're working with working with the black students and working with um, students of color is is giving them the 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 power to do it a little bit too um and holding them through their journey until they get to that space of power so i think that's for me where we're thinking about where to go from here i'm curious for you i think continuing to do the work i'm going to sum it up pretty easily uh -huh. which is not like me uh, <laughs> <laughs> name it claim it and stop it yeah. and there's two directionalities internally every day as a white person mm -hmm. i need to wake up i need to name mm -hmm. my internal experiences emotionally my, my thoughts um i need to claim my behaviors mm -hmm. because as a as a white person i can withdraw or tune mm -hmm. out Mm -hmm. um, I can get stuck in anger that also is not helpful. Mm -hmm. I think anger can be igniting, but I need to move through that to action. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and then externally, name it, claim it, stop it. Mm -hmm. As a white person, a white heterosexual cisgendered middle-class person, mm -hmm. um, I have so much privilege and I need to continue to take the responsibility to translate my knowledge into action. Mm -hmm. This is not a time for thought and theory and contemplation. Right. It's a time for action. Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to do it perfectly and I'm not going to do it well and I'm going to screw up um, mm -hmm. and I'm going to participate uh, in, in, in white supremacy and then hopefully I am aware of it and I own it Mm -hmm. I model better choices and behavior for me, for my family, for my community, for my students. Um, mm -hmm. I hope that I continue to use, uh, utilize all of that invisible privilege mm -hmm. to action and mm -hmm. change. Right. Because there's no reason that I can't be doing that. Yeah. There's just no reason. Yeah. And the beauty of it is sort of, you know, again, us holding our, each of our identities as, as we share those last, those last few words. It's like, it's like people of color need to have permission to not have to do anything. And, and, and white people need to find a way to move into that action space. Because in some ways, right, the, you know, white supremacy and the systemic oppression and the systemic racism privilege has that white privilege that has followed us all these years people of color have been forced to always be in action and defend while you know white people don't have to they can and you know i know you won't mind this they can go for a ride into the countryside and it'll be fine you know um so it's like both of us i think Black people, people of color need permission. It's okay to not have to fight it today. You're going to fight it every day anyway. You know, it's going to always be there. You'll get, one thing I say to my students and my, you know, say to my clients when this stuff comes up is there'll be another opportunity. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. And it's like for white people to, when you feel it, you do something about it. You know, yeah. 
I love the way you frame that, Jaden. And, mm-hmm. and, and I know we're going to wrap up, but I just, yeah. I, I think about silence and complicity is perpetuating mm-hmm. the status quo. And every day as a white person, I have the opportunity to be silent and complicit mm-hmm. and perpetuate the white supremacist status quo. And mm-hmm. I don't want to keep doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think about moving from non-racist, right? That's the comfort for white people. I'm a non-racist. Mm-hmm. I am, I, to feel good about myself, you know, I secretly don't support all of these hate, hateful things, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to use my voice or my actions. Right. And, and non-racist is different than anti-racist. Yes. Anti-racist yeah. is moving into action. Mm-hmm. It's, it's taking the steps forward. Um, and candidly, I think the, the, the responsibility as a white person is to move into an anti-racist identity mm-hmm. and anti-racist actions. Mm-hmm. And it's not, a, it's not a singular experience. It's a, right. I wake up every day and I, yeah. and I need to put anti-racist actions yeah. into action again. Right. Day. Yeah. And I wake up every day wondering what's going to happen today you know um you you know it's so uh, i don't know what's happening i'm almost like it didn't have to be like this (laughs) and i'm thinking 1492 like it didn't it didn't have to be you know it just it didn't i mean you know so, um, well, I, yeah, go ahead. I don't even, I don't know. I'm lost. For no, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't speak over you, but, yeah. um, but, but, but as you said that, what, what came to me is just that it doesn't, it's about division and right yeah. and in division, we stay so separate. Right. Um, our racial realities are very different. Right. That can't be, or should not be sugarcoated. And I still believe, Jade, that you and I, that, yeah. that white people, people of color can overcome by coming together through the struggle. Right. And that's the piece. It's like, we can tell just by this, that we can be so real and authentic. You can have a conversation. You can, you can talk about this stuff. And, it, and, and there can be a mutual respect and even an understanding of one's experience um, without the hatred. It's, it's, and I mean, and that's social learning theory and all that stuff, like that's how, it, that's how it does what it does, right? Is that you have to other people and, and you have to keep othering them and keep putting them into a box and and only showing things a certain way and not this way, but that way, um, creating fear. It's so much fear, you know, from the very beginning, it was fear-based, you know? Um, But that, you know, there also was so much, let's work together, but I think more fear, you know, those in power saw that. So they did things that created more divisiveness. And I think we have to say, there's nothing you can do that's gonna try to divide us now. Like we, we're, we, you know, we get what, we get what you're, we, we, we get what you're trying to do now. 
we see the calculated division. Yes. And I will not participate. I right. will not participate. I will not be complicit in the ignorance, the hatred, right. and the intolerance. Right. No, because so. together we will, we will come together. Yeah. We don't have a choice right now. All of our, our lives, our kids' lives, everybody, we all, it all depends on it now. It's you know? So thank you, Audrey. Jade, I, I want to thank you from the depths yeah. of my soul for, for continuing to challenge me, um, uh, for sharing your voice and just spearheading, I think, a conversation that I hope mm -hmm. so many people will just have the courage to, to try to have. I just thank you greatly. I'm so yeah. um so deeply honored you are more than welcome um and when i you know when i was thinking of this the first person that came to my mind was you you know you you gave me my start in teaching at the graduate level um and it's always been so fun working with you i, I remember from the very beginning so i remember my first interview with you so um uh the first person that came to my brain, the very first, and I was like, nope, it's going to be Audrey. That's who it's going to be. So I'm going to figure out how to get her in on this with me. <laughs> so the, the, the respect is mutual and the admiration is mutual as well. Thank you Brilliant. so much, Jake. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Psychology Radiocast, a service of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. We'd love to hear ideas from you about important or fascinating topics that we might cover. Email us at ppa at papsy.org. You can also find us at papsy.org. Our project manager and audio editor is Amelia Herbst. Logo and artwork designed by Camille St. James. Music orchestrated by Raquel Emder and Ross Mann. Special thanks to PPA staffer Judy Huntley and PPA members Jessica Black, Bernard Seif, Kim Wesley, Lee Burnett, Cassandra Parrish, Lavanya Devdas, Nancy Raymore, and Molly Cowan for helping to make this podcast possible. As always, the views of our guests may not necessarily reflect those of PPA as an association. Until next time, I'm your host, Dr. David Zarung.